Welcome to another special edition of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast. I'm your host, Derek Diamond. Thank you to everyone who listened to last week's look back at my conversation with local filmmakers Shannon Williams and Renee Jordan talking about their short film, The Skunk Ape. As I mentioned last week, always enjoy talking with local filmmakers, and this was no exception. This week, we're going to take a look back at my conversation with legendary actor Vernon Wells. Most know him for his roles as Wes in The Road Warrior and Bennett in Commando. And to me, he's arguably the greatest actor to ever play a villainous role because of his psychology that he brings into every villainous role that he's played. And I don't mean that as a knock on other actors, but as you'll hear in this conversation, hearing him explain a villain's motives made me respect him even more. And of course, you know, being a fan of The Road Warrior, I can remember watching that movie for the first time when I was in high school and being just blown away by it. So it was an honor to get to chat with him and uh, hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I had being a part of it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Vernon Wells. to another episode of Feature Presentation with Derek Diamond, where every week we take a deep dive into the trenches of independent filmmaking. I, of course, am your host, Derek Diamond, and this week it is my honor to welcome living legend of acting and film. Uh, you know him as Wes from The Road Warrior, Bennett from Commando, also appeared in Weird Science, and many other great films. Mr. Vernon Wells. Vernon, how are you, sir? Thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I'm I'm feeling great. Thank you. That was a, a wonderful introduction. Makes me feel so much better. <laughs> I, I practiced it once or twice before we started, so wanted to want to make sure I got it right. So, uh, before we, because there, there's several movies that we could talk about, you know, throughout your illustrious career, but I, I'm very curious as to how you got started. So, what made you want to get into the crazy world of filmmaking? Um, well, the truth of the matter is I never did want to get into this crazy world of acting. It was probably the furthest thing from my mind. Um, I w grew up on a farm with my grandfather and I lived with my mother in the city. Um, and she was a songwriter before I uh, was born. And when I was born, she quit that. And uh, I was out of the uh, three children that she had, I was the only one that really had any inclination to want to go into the field that she did, which was music. So I, I actually became a singer in rock bands and I figured that that would be where I would stay, you know, drug, sex and rock and roll, baby. I was a happy little dude. And um, I did that for a, a number of years, uh, singing with different bands. And um, I was hurt uh, badly in an accident. And while I was recuperating, um, my the uh, manager, the band manager, took my photograph around to all the agencies to try and get me a job because I was beginning to wear very thin on him, being around him all the time. And uh, he got me, I got a job as a male model, basically, and uh, doing some commercials and things. And I thought that that was pretty cool. I liked it. I enjoyed it because I was making a lot of money and I didn't have to pay anybody else. I wasn't sharing it with five other guys. Um, but then it... It, what intrigued me more than the acting side of it was being behind the camera, being being a, a director and, and, you know, being involved. And that's where I always was. I was always behind the camera looking at things and, and asking questions. And so that was where I, I virtually ended up was doing um, a commercial production and uh, had my own company producing and directing commercials. And I loved it. That's where I... That to me, that was it. That was the ultimate for me. I was the happiest kid on the block. And unfortunately, I got asked to do a stage play, which eventually I succumbed to my better half and said, yes, of course. And I went and did it. And I was seen by George Miller's girlfriend, Sandy Gore. And she uh, told George that she had seen uh, Wes. And um, so... Uh, you know, tit for tat, up we go, down we come. Uh, George decided I was perfect. 
I decided I wasn't, but that didn't matter, George decided <laughs> I was. Um, and that was where it all started. Um, I, you know, I got cast into Road Warrior. All I'd done was some small parts on television, really nothing dramatic in some series. And uh, then I was cast as the uh, lead in a movie with Mel Gibson. It was kind of like, whoa, boy, here we go. <laughs> Um, fortunately it turned out great. Um, everything went the way it was supposed to go and, uh, it went on from there. Um, so, you know, I, I've actually kind of done full circle. I direct now as well as act. So I've gone back into that side of it, but, um, acting is, is probably, um, 80% of my life. Um, I, I love it. I always, when I started, I hated it. Once I got used to it, I loved it, and um, it's been a love affair ever since. And it's like that old saying I heard, you know, when I first really started to get into the local film scene that that we have here in the town I live in. There's not really a how-to guide on how to get into film. You, know, Everybody has their own unique way of how they get to where they are. So it's it's interesting that, you know, you wanted to start on one side of the camera, but you wound up on the other. I feel like it's usually the opposite. It's usually those who want to act end up being behind the camera. So it's, it's interesting that it was the opposite way with you. And, and kind of going back into road warrior a little bit, I read that you actually wrote a full bio for Wes leading up to filming the film. Uh, why did you do that? Well, it wasn't something that I wanted to do, take my word for it. Um, <laughs> that was George's way of pre-production. What he would do was all of the leads would get around a table and they would write a biography. We had five days in which we would write and come in and then George Miller, Terry Hayes and Brian Hanna, the three writers, would listen to us present what we had written. And they'd go, no, that's crap, throw it away. Oh, that's nice. Hey, keep that. No, oh, good God. And they would go right through the whole thing. And then we'd go home that night. And of course, we'd rewrite it. We'd come in the next day. We did that for five days. By the end of the week, you had a solid biography of who the character was from when he was born, basically, until when the film started. And that was the basis of our characters. That's what we based our character on, what we had written and, um, which had become the, uh, they call it in, in the industry, a Bible of the character. We knew exactly where we were and what we were doing. And it was funny because if ever I got stumped and I would ask George what to do um, or how he would like it, and he would just reply, how would Wes do it? And, of course, then you would go back to what you'd written and go, oh, well, he'd probably rip off their arms and... Uh, piss down their throat. I don't know. And he'd say, well, rip off their arms, but can we lay back on the pissing down the throat? Um, so it, it was kind of that way that you, you understood your character. And I think that's why the characters work so well, because they were so well fleshed out. There was no kind of on the set going, oh, God, what am I going to do? <clears throat> you knew what you were going to do. You were going to do what the character would do. It was that simple. Well, it's great that you and the other actors came up with that yourselves because you know, as as a writer you know you you kind of have an idea of how the character is supposed to be in your mind but at the end of the day you know with Wes you're bringing him to life so you add those little nuances and going back and adding that full backstory and realizing the motivation for how he does things and why he does things. It, it definitely came across, you know, on screen. Cause I, I watched the road warrior over the weekend for the first time in years. And you, you can tell so much, so much went into that film, especially on the acting side. You know, everyone talks about the car chases and all the action that's was so revolutionary, but it, when it comes to film, it all comes down to the characters, in my opinion. And what's what I love about The Road Warrior is the characters and the universe that that you all built. Oh, yeah. We, um, we, we built our own little world. I mean, you know, it was, it was funny because I was talking to George one day about something and I said, so what should I base the character on? You know, just talking about different little things. And he said, well picture this 
And I said, what? He said, well, say, say the end of the world comes tomorrow. It doesn't have to come by an atomic explosion. It could come because of a sunspot that takes out everything electrical on Earth and we're back to the Stone Age, basically. And uh, at the end of your street is a very large supermarket and it's packed with all these foods that are in cans and jars and things that will last for a long, long time. What would you do? I'd probably go down and get some. He said, uh-huh. Just you? And I said, no, probably take a couple of my friends, you know, a couple of the mates to go down and get it. He said, uh-huh. And then there's a group from uh, three blocks away who know that the place is there and they come to get their share. What would you do? And I went, probably shoot the fuckers. We want it for ourselves. <laughs> and right there I went, oh, now I know who Wes is. Because it was that whole Thing, even though I knew all the nuances and I knew the beats, I still hadn't accepted the character. And it was just, that was George's way. He would make you, suddenly you go, oh, right. Now I know where we're at. Um, and that was the whole basis. And I think that's why the characters worked because we were the characters. We were, we were betraying something that was us at that moment. And um, I was chatting to George one day and I said, you know, George, the thing about Road Warrior is, is that the, the more the world degenerates, the more Road Warrior becomes the reality of what we are and who we are. And it scares me, to be blunt, that, that he had the ability to see that and make that film, which is more relevant today than it was when we made it. It's funny you say that because uh, I saw on Twitter a, a good friend of mine, Jason, posted this. It, it, was, it was actually a meme of Wes and said, when gas reaches $10 a gallon, we're all wearing mohawks and assless chaps. And I'm like, yeah. it's, it's, so, it's so crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the point is you look at it now and we are, you look at some of the, the things that are going on overseas and, and in some of the Arab countries and that. And the vehicles they race around in through the dunes when they're using AK-47s to shoot things look like they just came out of Mad Max. No, you're absolutely I mean, right. You go, oh, this is scary. Um, and we're getting to a point of where that film was. We're doing it. You know, we just don't understand it. We're doing the same thing. And I... I asked George one day, I said, don't know what you were on, George, but I wish to God you had given us all a bit of it. <laughs> I mean, man, he was that, uh, how he came up with all of that was just amazing. What was it like walking on set for the first time? And did you have any idea that the film would become, you know, the, the hit and to me, a standard bearer of action films, because you look at movies like Fast and the Furious, it's mostly if not all cg but road warrior that was all done with practical and real yeah know, real effects so what what was it like being on set you know you walking on the set for the first time of this film um i think the thing i noticed when i worked on set for the first time was my ass got really cold and that understandable was the, the burning feature in my brain that first day was oh my god um, but I don't really, uh, strangely enough, we were made up and, uh, came onto the set. And I mean, that set was a complete set. It was the whole thing, you know, they built it with the moat around it and everything that was the set we were working out of. And then all around that, there was 20, 30, 40 of these weird dune buggy type vehicles, the truck, um, all the motorbikes, all that stuff was there. So even from the first day, when you walked onto that set, you felt like you had walked into that movie. You had walked into that hell. It was there and you were working in it. There was no kind of easing you in, so to speak. You were, you were in the deep end, dude. You sank or you swam and got run over by all those idiots on those dune buggies. It was just that simple. We, we were all there from day one. There was not one person on the set who was like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? Uh, we were, you know, 
head down, us up. We were in there, man. And uh, I think it was all the prep that we'd done with um, with uh, our beloved George getting ready for it that just had us tuned. We all wanted to be there, believe me. We all wanted to get on that set and start acting. We're all so bloody tuned up from everything we'd done that we just wanted to be there. Let's do it. And I think the first scene we shot was where we rode up to the – it was to be the opening of the movie, but it, it didn't make it was we rode up to the palm house and that's where the, the um, blonde kid was discovered and I took him. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, no, I, I didn't have time to be nervous. I didn't have time to be anything. I just had time to do it, you know, just get out there and do it. You, you had all these other great actors around you that you, you didn't want to be look like a, a, an amateur twit in their eyes. You really put your best foot forward and went for it. But I still had a cold ass. <laughs> But despite that, it still turned out great. Uh, yeah, they had a nickname <laughs> that um, a certain uh, somebody uh, called Mel Gibson gave me, which was barometer bum. Every time my ass went purple, I had to get us heated. <laughs> so people would walk around looking at my butt going, yeah, it's getting a little purpley there. Maybe we should give him some heater. Like, oh, for goodness sake. But at least he was looking out for you. Sorry? But at least he was looking out for you, though. Oh, he looked out for me all through the film. He was great. No, I, I don't have one unkind word to say about Mal. He was just wonderful. I had a ball. So, and you mentioned the the prep that went into that film. And with all the, the car chases and the fact, you know, we mentioned that everything was 100% real. What was, what was that experience like? Because if I understand correctly, there weren't really any injuries or incidents no we were we were pretty um pretty lucky in that respect there was um a couple one was one of the stunt guys took a motorbike out during the weekend went running around the uh because we're in the middle of a desert and he started running around the desert chasing wild camels because there was a lot of wild camels out there and uh one of the camels took offense to it and kicked the shit out of him and broke his leg um that was uh, one of the, the – uh, but that wasn't on the set. That was just a dumb accident. But then one of the stunt guys um, hit the uh, car when they flips over the car. He hit it a little too hard, and his leg hit the top of the car and put him out of control. Um, and he broke he, – he actually had a metal rod in his thigh, and he bent the metal rod basically to an L shape. That hurts just and, just thinking about it. Yeah, now um, our uh, stunt coordinator um, Max Aspen, he uh, hurt his back uh, when they did the the scene where he drives the car off into space and hits the top of the other cars and he goes into a spin around the that thing. That wasn't actually supposed to happen. He was supposed to go over it, but um, you know these things unfortunately do and will happen. And uh, the seat had a plate in it to protect him, but the, the plate got bent and it, uh, fractured his back. Ouch. That was virtually the only um, accident. And they were basically to, to uh, people in the stunt department. Uh, actors didn't, uh, I don't know of any actor that got hurt in the film. That, that's... I got hit on the elbow by that bloody boomerang and... <laughs> Pissed me off for about three days because it was right on the funny bone. It wasn't funny. Take my word for it. No, it's, it, there's nothing funny about being hit in the funny bone. I can't imagine getting hit by a boomerang. Uh, yeah. So kind of transitioning back into talking about you, know, you writing a full bio for the Wes character and leading up to this film. Did you carry that with you throughout your career and do that for other characters that you've played? Yeah, it, it actually... Um, what I learnt from George doing uh, Mad Max, uh, sorry, Road Warrior, has um, stayed with me, and that's the way I, I approach my roles, whether it's a good guy or a, or a villain. I, I always look, I don't look at the film as a whole because I don't want to really know what the other people are doing. I look at the character and then I figure out who the character is and what the character is, and that's the way I play it. And I, you know, I, I managed to be able to come up with a, a total synopsis of who it is 
in my mind from inception to when the film starts. So I actually have a basis for what I'm doing. And that's all courtesy of George Miller, because that's the way he taught me to do it for Mad Max. And that's carried on throughout my career that I can look at it and figure it out, um, which I think is, it's a, it's a good thing to have, put it that way. It, it sort of comes in real handy when you've got some complex character and you can break it down into very simple parts and go and do it. Well, I think that's also the sign of a great teacher and a great director is when you can give your cast and crew you know, abilities that they will then carry with them. Because that, that's what's so great about filmmaking is it's people teaching other people how to do it and then they teach others how to do it and you just pass it you know, from set to set from mm -hmm. year to year that's i i love the collaboration of filmmaking like that like to me there's just no other art form like it no i mean it, it's pay it forward mm -hmm. you know you i do a lot of uh, films which are small films and i do them because it to me that's my way of paying it forward to the younger generations coming up that want to be filmmakers it's uh, is helping them, you know, I can get in and, and do a role for them that they would never be able to afford and uh, just build their film up uh, a few points from where it might be. And um, I love doing that. And, it, you know, they watch what I'm doing and it always gives them a kick as to how they can get their other actors doing certain things. And um, I think that's what the business is about is helping the next generation, showing people, you know, George Miller was one of my greatest influences and then a gentleman by the name of Volk Moll, who was a, um, a DP, was the other one because Volk's whole theory on life was um, what he knew it was his responsibility to pass on to the next generation. And so he would always be training his assistants to become brilliant DPs. And that was the end of it. You know, he, he, he'd, his, he'd made it. So he didn't have anything to prove to anybody. Now what he could do was help. And I, I'm virtually that same thing. You know, I, I've done and basically everything I can do in the business and loved every minute of it and still do. But at least now I can pass that knowledge on to other people and tell them and show them how to, uh, to make it work for them. And, um, you know, to me, that's what it's all about. It's not about being a great actor or having people say, you know, you're a living legend. I'm glad I'm not a dead legend. At least I'm a living one. Um, but, you know, you've got that, done that, been there. Now it's time to help somebody else get there. And uh, I love doing that. I love getting out and, you know, giving advice and, and helping people. I, it, but don't get me wrong, on the set, I never open my mouth. Um, I'm there to be an actor. I'm not there to tell the director how to direct. So I just, you know, if he asks me what I think, I'll tell him. But if he doesn't, I keep my mouth shut. Well, and, <laughs> you, and you bring up a great point because uh, to me, that's really the only way that the film industry will continue to move on and go into the next generation and the generation after is, like you said, paying it forward because you know, classes are great and there's great resources online like Masterclass and other you know, avenues as well. But you learn, at least I learn the best by doing. And, it's, yeah. be, and being on a set cannot replicate, you know, being in a classroom cannot replicate what you would learn on a set. So that, that's what I tell people if they want to get into film is just, is just do it. You know, get on a set as a PA and and yeah. learn, pick yeah, everybody's brain. Do whatever you have to do. It's, you know, it's all learning the business. You know, it's a complex business. You don't just get it overnight. You know, there's so many inferences and different things, and people don't understand that. You know, acting is not about talking loudly and and shooting big guns. Acting is about all the subtleties that you do, the things that are in. You. And somebody said, the best acting comes out of your eyes. When people can just look at your face and know exactly what's inside your brain. And that's what acting's about, is showing without words, being able to show people what's happening, you know, where you're going, who you are, why. And that's the part of it I love, is that 
you get to do all those wonderful things. And then you can, you know, people say, I, I always remember um, I did a little TV series called The Amazing Sea Monkeys. And I did the last episode, actually, and played the shark man. So I was half man, half shark. Yeah, baby. And um, I had a bowl doing it. The Chiodo brothers uh, created it and, and did it. And um, while I was doing that, there was this young kid who was a uh, an unpaid intern, basically, on the set, came up to me one day and said, um, would you mind if when you're not on set, I could talk to you and ask you questions? And I said, of course, go for it. So for the three or four days, he would come up to me whenever I was available and, and ask me like I would when I was learning the business um, to be a director. And so he would ask me and talk to me about it, and I would tell him. And, uh, you know, about probably five, six, maybe seven years later, my management said, oh, we've got this new production company up above us, so we're going up tomorrow to have a chat to them, and we're going to take your, your photos up because they might have something you can do. And I said, oh, great, let me know. So the next day, uh, my manager rang me, and she said, you'll never know who's upstairs. And I went, okay, you're right, I'll never know who's upstairs. Who was it? And she said, remember a little intern when you were doing um, Amazing Sea Monkeys? And I went, what? And she said, yeah, there was a young man that used to come and talk to you every day. And I said, oh, my God, yes, I remember him. So what's he got to do with it? And she said, well, that young man went on to do a little movie called My Great Big Fat Greek Wedding. And now he has the office above us and he thinks you're an amazing human being and he would love to put you in his movies. So it, it's that circle that goes around, comes around, you know, and it doesn't take, I, it was funny because um, I had to fly out a, a week ago and the night before I was in the grocery store and, and I had a, you know, 10, 15 items in a, in a basket and these two young kids came up behind me and they had like two things, an ice cream or something. And I went, go, go. You know, you've only got two things. I got a whole thing here. And they went, no, 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 no. And I said, come on, go. You guys have got more to do than I have. So go. And they were like, oh, thank you so much. That's so nice, you know. And, and um, I didn't even think anything of it. The next day, um, the plane that I was on, it had, it, when it landed, you had to get in a bus to go to the um, thing. And um, I was down a bit i didn't go in so I, by the time i got to the bus screwing around by the time i got to the bus um, there was nowhere to put my bag so i had my bag i was holding it and the pilot from the plane was sitting in a seat up the front and he stood up and he said excuse me and i said what he said come sit and i said no no that's your seat that's fine and he said no sit you've got a bag to hold sit here what goes around comes around absolutely you you don't understand it. It's just you. It takes no more to be nice than it does to be an asshole. You know, and same amount of time. And it's so really exhausting to be angry all the time. You know, and that's what I tell people is that. And, and plus, like you said, you never know who you're going to affect. You know, it's like the the intern that then went on to, you know, do my big fat Greek wedding. You just never know where like how you're going to affect people and where that will carry them yeah it's um it's interesting how um things that we say as who we are affect people that you always have to be very aware of, of what you're saying and to whom because you can affect people by just what you say and it may not be serious you may be joking i mean a couple of times because i'm an australian i have a bloody stupid sense of humor um I have said something in jest, which has been taken the wrong way and really hurt somebody. And I've, I had to go and go, oh, my God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, like, no, 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 that's not what I meant at all. I was being funny. I was being facetious. But the damage is done, regardless of how much you apologize and how much they say, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. It's always there. No, you're and absolutely so you've right. Got be, you've got to be so aware that, that what you say and what you do can affect other people. Nope. I, I agree 100%. Uh, there is a, a question that I've been wanting to ask you because 
you've played some very iconic villains such as Wes. Uh, you played Bennett in Commando. Why, as someone who's an actor and is known for playing villain roles, why do you think audiences and just people in general have such a fascination with villain characters? Like you look at at Wes and you look at other great villains in film like Darth Vader or the Terminator, Hannibal Lecter. Why do you think people are so compelled and drawn to villain characters? I think it's because every one of us has a little bit of villainy in them. I don't care who we are. Um, and I, I really think that people, they, they wonder sometimes what it would be like to be on the other side of the penny. And when they can go to a film and see somebody who looks just like a normal person doing something that is so incredibly diabolical or bloodthirsty or just so it intrigues them. They really want to, to look into his soul. They want to know why, you know, why would he do that? How does that, God, God, you know, I've been at a movie theater where um, one of my movies is playing, listening to the reaction from people who are screaming at the screen. Don't go in there. He's in there. Don't go, you know, like this whole whole thing and when you know i attack the person coming through though they're all so upset oh my god why not why didn't you listen to me you know so it becomes a personal thing that we actually think that these people that are in the movie are uh, listening to what we're saying because we get caught up in who, who they are especially the villains i think villains people um i'm with me when i i act a villain to me is something I enjoy playing because there are no, no rules. Villains don't have rules. You know, the villain can do anything. He can kill your grandmother and kick your dog. That's what he's supposed to be. He's a villain. Whereas if you're the good guy, you can't do that. You know, there's rules for the good guy. So I think also people gravitate to that because there's no rules. You can do whatever you want to do. Um, attitude. And I love it because... I can create these larger than life, um, way out there characters that uh, people will enjoy. And, and I think they look at what I do and it's the extension of what they, they would sometimes like to do to their boss when they get really pissed off and, you know, like, God, I'd like to go in there and do a Wes on him. Um, <laughs> it's that whole, whole thing. Um, and I think that's that's why I enjoy it because I can I, I don't have to be nice to little old ladies, you know. So I can I have no box around me. Whereas if I when I'm playing the other roles, I do, and I have to be very aware of it because there are rules that have to be followed if you are a nice person. And I think the other side of it is that when you're playing a villain, uh, it's not you. It's a character that you've made up. It's a character that you've created. When you're playing um, the other side of that, the good guy, there is a certain part of your personality that has to go into it. Because people, And then what you're doing is you're allowing people to see who you are. And I think that sometimes is a little hard, is like you, especially when you first start doing um, the good guys, because you realise that people are looking into your soul and seeing who you are, like when you're doing a villain, they can't because it's not you. They can't see anything but what you're projecting on the screen. So that that used to get me. Now it doesn't. Now I don't care. Like, yeah, what do I care? Um, but originally it uh, used to get me sort of I'd go, oh, I don't know if I want to play a good guy. You know, I like playing villains because I can get away with murder. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's. It's a cycle that we go through. And I think a lot of the audience, audiences love rooting for the villain because that's who they'd like to be if they were in that situation. They'd like to be that ruthless, that person, that one that's going to come out on top. You know, they don't want to be the good-looking guy that's going to get the girl. I, I can get all the girls I want if I'm the villain. Maybe they're not alive, but I can still get them. So, you know, you've, you've got that other side of the, the coin to look at, um, and I think you know, people look at it that way too. And what makes a great villain, and I would put Wes in this category as well, is the best villains to me 
in their mind, they're not the villain. No. No, no, no villain is a villain. It's that simple. The minute you play a villain as a villain, he is so bleh. The, the thing is, is that the villain is the good guy because the villain to the villain is trying just to do something that he wants to do. Our hero is a villain because he's trying to stop him. So you have that whole thing of no villain thinks he's a villain. He always thinks he's a good guy getting screwed over by that ass over there, the good-looking one with the two blondes. Um, so it's it's that simple. No, never never play a villain as a villain. It doesn't work. You got to play him as a as a good guy. And that's what to me makes villains so compelling is their their motivation. And I think we also can kind of sympathize with them, especially if you have like a a tragic backstory that causes them to become the villain where you think, well, maybe I would be in that same situation if that were me. You know, villains, villains to me make me think much more than the heroes do. You know, even as a kid, I was always drawn to the villain characters like in Star Wars, I was drawn to Darth Vader and Emperor Palpatine. With the Terminator, I was drawn to the Terminator. Villains are just very interesting to me. Yeah, and, you know, the villain does have a more interesting role, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's a lot more depth to it. He can do and say and have, and, and it's really fun. Um, and I think that people enjoy that side of, of, uh, of, the, of the screen as well when they're watching it like you when you're a kid you know they gravitate to it i want to be the villain you know and then there's your your neighbor who wants to be the flash you know and it's like yep yeah, why um you know so it's it's definitely it has excuse me it has an appeal and as some people say all the good looking women gravitate to the uh, bad men simply because they like that sense of danger and I no, think that, that appeal is with a lot of people. They like that sense of danger with the villain. I think you're absolutely right. And kind of transitioning into your newest film, which was actually just released, uh, called Tales from the Other Side. It's a six-part horror anthology uh, film, which I, I had the pleasure of watching, and I really enjoyed it because I feel like there aren't too many anthology movies anymore like I, I like a good collection of short stories whether it's in a mm -hmm. book or in film so uh can you talk about your character and what made you interested to get involved with the project um i was interested in getting involved with it because like i said before they were young kids you know in their 20s doing this and um i like the character I liked the I liked the whole idea. I thought it was just wonderful because you're never quite sure of who he is, and even up to the end, you are never quite sure of who he is. Is he the devil? I mean, is he taking these people's souls? Is he harvesting? You don't know. It's that it's that really cool part of of what happens to the other people. We know they're dead, but why? How? Who did it? Did he do it? So there's this whole wonderful thing about that character that, that we don't, is left unsaid. You have to work it out for yourself. To me, I always thought he was the devil because he has that, that whole thing of, you know, I am the devil, you will do as I need, you know. And um, he, he sort of, sense I sensed him as being the devil in his own way. He may not have been the devil, the devil from hell, but he was the devil. He had that same uh, thing going on. And it's, it's fun because I've, I've done a couple of, I did another little uh, short movie called um, uh, Lilith. And if you know the, the psychology there, Lilith was the devil's second wife. And she was also Adam's, no, sorry, the, the devil's wife, because she was Adam's second wife, and she went to hell. And Lilith, I did a, a little, Lilith is four different um, stories about men who do bad things to women and um, how they lose their soul. And mine was this old guy who just wants to die. His wife's died of cancer, and he just wants to go. 
and he gets a new uh, handler, this nurse, and he figures out straight away that she's not a nurse, that she's the devil come to collect his soul because he sold his soul when he was quite young. And um, you learn that Lilith is this very good-looking girl, is the devil, but she's the devil's daughter, that the devil retired and handed over his um, his enterprise to his children. And uh, they decided that coming up as a devil with horns and a tail and, and spiked hooves really wouldn't help much. So she came up as a very good-looking woman to collect all the souls that her father had... Um, taken but hadn't bothered to collect and it was an interesting film simply because it was 20 minutes of her and me sparring with um, vocally as she wanted my soul and I wouldn't give it to her until she did what I wanted and there was this back and forth back and it was just so good and I really enjoyed it and it's that 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 thing is is what we're talking about is is why do people get so obsessed with the villain which one of us was the villain was I the villain because all I wanted was to be with my wife? Or was she the villain because all she wanted was my soul that had been bartered for many years before? So you, I love that kind of, of thing where you, you, you don't have a clean-cut analogy to go by. That's the same as in Flickr. Who is he? Is he the devil? Is he just uh, the undertaker who likes to keep a record of all the people that come through and go? Is he a demon in some way who takes these people to hell because they've done something? I don't know. Do you? I I had the same takeaway you did. I, I took your character as being like a representation of the devil because you had that strong you know power of persuasion to the, the video editor and you could just feel it you know, coming through the screen and I'm kind of touching on your other film as well. That's what I love about short films, especially the ones that leave things kind of open to your own imagination where you think, well, this, this probably happened, but it's also nice to theorize, well, maybe this happened with this character or maybe these two characters wound up together That's what's, and as I've been, you know, dabbling into doing short films myself, I've, that, I've fallen in love with that form of narrative storytelling that has good content but leaves things open for your own interpretation. Yeah, leave something for the audience to think about. I mean, I think we, we have a tendency to treat the audience like children. They don't really understand, so we actually put it out there in very large letters and beat them over the head with it, whereas I think a much more successful thing is when you make them think they have to come, and they'll come up with 30 different, what you and I have just talked about, if you talk to somebody else straight after me, they'd have a different take. But that's because a, they would see it from a different angle. But that's a great so, thing about being a fan of film is that you can like leave the theater and you can theorize on, you know, like I might go to a movie with five friends and we have five different theories on what happened. Yeah. And then we debate and say, oh, no, I'm right, you're wrong, you're wrong, I'm right, so on and so forth. So that's I, – I love that about film. And to me, there's no other art form. And no, no disrespect to sculpting, painting. To me, no other art form can generate that type of a response like a good film. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, I agree. It's, um, it's, it's an, an interesting way of communicating. Absolutely. And, you know, it makes because I always think the best films are when you walk out and, and it depends on the mood. If I, all I want to do is just go and watch a movie and sit and just be entertained, I'll go and watch an animated movie from Disney. Um, but if I want to go and watch something which will actually make me think, I'll go and watch one of the, the better. And most of them come out of Europe and Asia. You know, they make you, you'll sit there and go, oh, dear. What happened? Why did no? Hang on, that that didn't happen. <laughs> and it'll get you you going. It'll make you you think about it. You know, I mean, I saw the original Old Man, which was uh, uh, the original one was uh, shot in uh, South um, South Korea. It was a Korean movie, and it was brilliant. 
I mean, I, I just lapped up every frame of it, thought it was wonderful. Then we had to go and spoil it by doing an American version of it, which just didn't work. Um, you know, the thing about some films are best left alone, number one, but there's also that thing of if you're bringing a subject matter to life, have the guts to go all the way, don't pull up three-quarters of the way and expect the audience to go, oh, that was cool. Because they're not. They're going to go, what? And now you sort of, that that reflection goes through all the characters. Now suddenly the girl who everybody looks at and, and um, in, I remember seeing um, the girl with the gold, with the, um, the dragon tattoo. In the original version of it, Swedish version, she kills that guy for a reason. And that is because he rapes her, but he doesn't rape her very nicely. He does it from the rear. And she kills him because of that. The American version, that didn't happen. So now she's a murderer. In the first one, you're like, yeah, I would have killed the motherfucker too. So you're on her side. But in the second one, you're like, she's just killing people. You know, why would I feel sorry for her? So I think there's that point of view that we always have to to um to maintain in film is that if you want people to enjoy it they have to be able to put themselves in the role of the characters and see themselves there doing that you know when you say i would have done that that puts you in her role you're now agreeing with her because that's that's where your your emotions lie but if you go oh you know she's just a killer now you've lost her for the rest of the movie. Yeah, that's a pretty important plot detail to leave out. Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I love films that, that um, make you think. You know, you've got to sort of sit there and go, hmm, that's cool. Why did that happen? And try to outthink the director or outthink the story. And I mean, that's what film's supposed to do. It's supposed to get your mind clicking over. And, you know, if you like the villain, it's like, okay, so how did he get into that position, you know? So it's, it's a good way of, um, and you can get a great message across too, by the way, when you're doing film and villains. Some villains can show you a lot, believe it or not. But, um, yeah, I just, I enjoy it, you know? I did an interview before and they were in fits talking to me about the fact that I'm always having fun. Um, that's the way I work. I, I enjoy what I do. And, um, to me, everything I do is an, a joy and fun, whether I'm playing Wes or, or, um, Bennett from Commando or any of the other multitude of characters that I've played that haven't been nice. I'm still having fun. I'm enjoying what I'm doing and uh, doing it because I enjoy it. And uh, I think that. That to me is more of what works for me than than sitting down for three weeks and dissecting the character and talking to a psychiatrist and doing all that stuff. Um, I think the sheer energy I put into it from the, the fact that I'm having a ball is what makes them work. It makes people, and also it makes people a lot, people are a lot more scared of somebody that looks like I did in Wes, a good looking guy who can be that murderous. That's scary as shit. Somebody mm -hmm. who's ugly and got a pockmarked face that does that, you're not scared of. Because you look at them and go, yeah, he's the killer. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't go near him. But, you know, if you've got somebody that's good-looking playing a role like the, the Boston Strangler, Tony Curtis, you can understand why people would, women would go home with him. And you, you know, of course, I would too, for God's sake, if he asked me. <laughs> so, and that makes it a much more terrifying thing. Absolutely. Whereas if you look at something and go, I wouldn't go near him. It's not terrifying anymore. It's not something that, that makes you think. You know, you need to be able to go, whoa, crap. I would do that. And I think that's why I like playing some of the characters I play because people, you know, Wes especially, people just bought right into him, you know. Everybody loved him. 
And uh, and when you look at the character, you go, you got to be kidding me. He was like the, the scum of the earth times six. But people identified. They saw in him something that they could identify with. And that's what movie making is about. No matter what we think or or say it's about people getting an identification with the hero or the villain, whatever side of the street they want to be on. It's, you know, a good film, as I always say, and George Miller said the same, a good film has a hero that you love and a villain you can hiss at. And we've forgotten that. But a good film, you look at the villain and you go, oh, damn, don't want to be in a dark room with him. But still, you're attracted to him. That's the point. You know, George always said that if somebody, if I was in a, an alley and somebody walked up the alley, they'd turn around and walk out in a real big hurry. And yet half the women in the audience when I was in that costume would want to go to bed with me. And it's that thing that we forget. That's what it's all about. That's the point of making films. The point of doing what we do is to be able to bring that kind of um, thing into people's brains, you know, make them think about it for 10 seconds. And, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I'm just happy I can do it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, is there something, so if you look back to the first day you walked onto set of The Road Warrior, is there something, maybe a piece of advice that you wish a fellow actor or filmmaker would have told you then that would have helped out your career even more than you and even bigger than it became? If I'm honest, no, because I had two, well, three actually. I had George Miller and I had George Miller's partner who, um, you know, Brian was always, would just tell me little things and George was, you know, most wonderful director. I, I mean, I worked with the best right from the beginning. And the co-stars that were, were seasoned actors, Mel Gibson and three or four of the other very talented, um, very big-time Australian actors, had nothing but praise for what I was doing. And they would just be, you know, they were always building up your, um, building you up so that you would, try even harder, you know, and I don't think there was anything anybody could tell me that would have helped me later. Um, I think if somebody had have said to me, now you've made one movie, get the hell out of Dodge and never come back. It would have been a smart piece of advice, but nobody told me that. So I just kept going and here I am. So, and it's a, you know. and it's a good thing you did. Cause even, you know, years later you look at your IMDB and it just the list of credits that you have in, current production pre-production and post are absolutely insane and i i commend you for still being as active as you are you know later on in life it's amazing thank you i i always say to people why do you want me i'm an old man and they go hey <laughs> no you get out on that set and you look like you're 12 and that's the point you know you do your job and you do it well and people just accept who you are and um I have always said that while people hire me, I'll work. When they don't hire me, I won't. It's that simple. Um, I've tried to retire three times and I haven't succeeded, as you probably can figure. Um, I decide I'm out and somebody decides I'm not and drags my ass kicking and screaming back in to do another movie and then I'm off doing it all again. Um, I... I don't know how long it will last. You know, this movie I'm about to go on to next week could be the last one I ever make. No, no, it won't. It'll be the second last. I got another one later on in the year. Well, no, I got three more later on in the year. Well, and maybe after I do all of them, it'll be over. I don't know. I just, you know, I've got people that book me three years from now, for God's sake. And I'm saying, what, you want me in a wheelchair? Dear God. Um, but they're booking me for a film that they're doing. So it's like... I just, I just accept it and go with it. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to carry on about it. I'm just having fun. And while I can continue to have fun, I'm going to do it, dude. I'm going to keep at it. That's awesome. That's fantastic. 
Uh, two more questions before we get out of here. What is one piece of advice that you could give to an aspiring filmmaker? Pay $7.50 and watch it on the screen. <laughs> um, uh, to, uh, I work with a lot of aspiring filmmakers. And um, the one piece of advice I could give is never think you're smart enough not to listen. Because my grandfather always used to say to me, I grew up with my grandfather, he'd say, you want to be the smartest man in the room? Hire everyone that's smarter than you are. And that is the truth of it. If you want to be an aspiring actor, I mean, a filmmaker, get people you know, know what they're doing. It doesn't matter whether they're 10 years old or, or 90 years old. If they know what they're doing and you want them to do so-and-so, then leave them the hell alone to do it. I've worked with so many directors who get this bloody thing of, of micromanaging everybody. And to me, that is so stupid. Why did you hire them in the first place? Because it's, it's you know, if you're going to micromanage everybody, you don't need them. You're doing it yourself. And that's my advice is don't be afraid to listen. Yep, that's uh, when I shot my first short, I was the director, but I was one of, if not the least experienced person on set because I made sure to get a strong AD, a strong DP, those that knew immensely more than me because I knew that yeah. you know, I, I was going to do nothing but learn. So you're exactly you right. One. You need a really good sound guy too. Yes. Yep. That's uh, sound. Everything is, else you can put in, but an actors are a dime a dozen. You need to worry <laughs> about that. Um, but no, you get those three or four people and you've got it made, you know, as long as you do your job, it'll turn out brilliantly. And as long as you know what you're doing and you're prepared to listen to advice when people say, well, what about we do this? Or, you know, this would be an easier way to do it. I've worked with directors who have just gone, what? No, that's not what I planned. Oh, okay, sure. Let's go spend half a day doing something that we could shoot in 20 minutes. It's that simple. And you learn from experience. If you allow the people that know to show you, you are going to be brilliant. And a couple of the people that I've worked with from when they were kids to now, they are amazing directors um, and still have that same quality. You know, George Miller is the quietest, nicest human being on the set you'll ever meet in your life. The nicest, quietest man. Never raises his voice. Um, there's two or three other directors that I've worked with who have that same quiet intensity. You know, they don't... They don't raise their voice. They know exactly what they're doing. They map it out. They get all their, their, their major players in their crew and cast to, to production meetings and they go through everything they've mapped out and then they ask for suggestions. You know, what do you think we can do to make this easier? People will tell you. If it's a good idea, take it. If it's a bad idea, move on. And that's the main thing is um, that's how good shit comes from everything. You know, people becoming one. We're a family in film. We're not individuals. You know, film is an A person. Film is a group of per persons, persons. Um, and that's, that's how, you know, when I'm directing, I have everybody around me that directs more than I do while I'm doing the regular scene um, because I'm always listening wanting to know, you know, with the lighting guy, can we do this to make it work, but not spend a day? You know, right. Get them, you know, get the, the DP, just, you know, this is what I want. I tell, I, and I always know what I want. So I'll tell him what I want and say, is there a way we can do this? That's not going to take forever. And so they will give you their advice. And then you, you make something that really looks good. And that's it. That's all I can say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's your favorite movie of all time? Mine or mine? I will say your all-time favorite movie to just sit and watch. You don't have to necessarily be in it. I've been in. Um, my favorite movie of all time to watch is probably The Assassin. The, Thank you. <laughs> the, 
Uh, it's you, had, you had some three. assistance. It's actually three. It's the assassin, which I love. Um, it's old man, which I think is brilliant, the original, and the girl with the um, dragon tattoo. The three of those, the trilogy. They're probably my favorite favorite movies, simply because um, they are so well done for no money. Not one of those films is a big budget film. They're all little films and they're so beautifully done. And that is, is what I love, is to be able to watch something like that that is so perfectly put together. And we forget that when we do big budget films. It's like, you know, the first Mad Max was great. Road Warrior was brilliant. Um, and then it went to hell because they got a lot of money. <laughs> Even George will tell you that, that it just didn't work. Um, it worked when it was a raw bones, knuckle-biting movie. Once it became a, um American blockbuster, it didn't work anymore because all of that wonderment that was got taken away. Everything was bought. And, um, you know, you can't – sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes just having that, that rough-edged rawness – to go with what it is makes it work. Take that away, it doesn't work as well. It's still a good movie, but it doesn't work as well. You know, you've taken away that little piece of wonderment that um, is what sometimes makes it a movie. No, you're one. You're one hundred percent right. Uh, do you have a website or a social media that you'd like to plug so the viewers and listeners uh, yeah, can follow Vernon you? Vernon G Wells or Vernon Wells number one. Uh, that's like, um, for, uh, oh, what am I? I'm on all of the things. It's always, it's either Vernon G. Wells or Vernon Wells. Um, all of them. Cause I, I'm not very intelligent about putting all my different things on it. So people can't get into it. I don't care. Um, so my social media was at one stage being done by a very intelligent young man who unfortunately lives in Russia. So he isn't doing it at the moment because um, he's Russian, um, which is a shame because he's a very smart kid and has nothing to do with all that crap. But, hey, that's the way the world is. But, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all of those I'm on. You can find me. It's not that difficult. Just Lee Vernon Wells is my um, Facebook friend page. Um, and I think, uh, Vernon G. Wells, number one is Twitter or something. One of those. Fantastic. Well, Vernon, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and chat with me. It's been an honor. It's my, my pleasure, Mr. Diamond, sir. And I have had a lot of fun and, um, if and when the time occurs that I one of these movies I'm in is coming out and you want to talk to me, I'd be more than happy to come back on your show. Thank you again to Vernon Wells for that fantastic conversation. It was such an honor to chat with him last summer on the Feature Presentation Podcast. And who knows, maybe I'll get to chat with him again as part of the Derek Diamond Experience. For next week, you'll get to hear another great guest from the Feature Presentation Podcast, actress Laura Faye Smith. She's most known for being the voice of Rosalina in the Super Mario video game series and is also one of the nicest guests I've ever had on any of my podcasts. So be sure to come back and check out that fun episode. And I will say this uh, as a bit of a breaking news announcement, I guess you could call it. Next week's conversation with Laura Faye Smith will be the final uh, re-release for this uh, summer break. I am bringing the show back a little bit early. Um, the show will be returning for sure by Monday, July 24th, which will be uh, two weeks from today. Uh, if you're listening to this, the day it drops, but you might get an extra episode the week before, uh, that might drop either the evening of the 18th or on the 19th. Um, there's still some moving parts that I've got to work out and hopefully I didn't jinx myself by saying that, but just stay tuned to social media and uh, you'll be able to find out exactly when the Derek Diamond experience will be coming back. But it will be back for sure by uh, July 24th. Um, so bringing it back, as I said, a little earlier than I had planned, but 
it'll be for a good reason that you guys will uh, hear about very soon. But until then, you can check out past episodes of the Derek Diamond Experience at linktree.com slash ddiamondpodcast. You can find anything related to the show in one location if you want to follow the show on social media, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Everything is at linktree.com slash ddiamondpodcast. And if you could, please leave a review. The more reviews I get, the more likely the show is to be discovered by anyone searching for filmmaking podcasts or podcasts about movies in general. And I believe that's going to do it for this episode. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you guys back here next Monday for another special edition of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast.